Well, actually, no, not the first <laughs> try. Uh, 30 tries before you got here, then I think I got it, and then I confirmed it with you, and then five or six more tries. Yeah, first try. <laughs> um, so you were actually you were introduced to each other in the first episode four minutes ago. Um, but you were introduced to me by like, Dive Hive. He yes. reached out to me. It was just like, you know, you have to have her on. Um, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I have listened to all your releases that you have on oh. Spotify and the new single that you sent me this morning. Uh, really dig your really dig your tunes nice, so i'm um, pretty psyched to have actually discovered you know like i always say like i do this so local bands and artists can get discovered and you know help them get discovered but rarely am i discovering new artists from it so <laughs> it was cool to be like oh yeah all right awesome. <laughs> i just discovered someone new from my own show it's amazing <laughs> um but so we want to well obviously we'll play uh, a couple of your songs, but okay. I wanted to kind of go back and let you tell your story um, of music, kind of how you want to tell it. So. Okay. Um, it does start when I was pretty little. So my one of my very first memories, I was like a toddler. Uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I was at the grocery store with my mom, and this grocery store used to play oldies over the PA, and they were playing Beatles songs. They were playing Eight Days a Week. And I was like three, and I was like, there aren't eight days a week in a week. What, what, what are they talking about? And my mom, big Beatles fan, she was like, no, 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 it's a great song. It's a great song. At three, she brings me home. She has all of the Beatles records, not on vinyl, but on cassette. And like over the years, we went through all of them chronologically. And that was like my first introduction to, wow, this is, this is cool. This is music. This is what people can create. And then specifically when I was about six or seven, I was doing my, what, hundredth re-listen by that point of these, these albums, and I heard Paperback Writer. And um, the way Paperback Writer starts, it's got the, the Paperback Writer, and then the band comes in, and then the bass comes in specifically with this like boom, 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 and that was like, my ears were like, what, what is that? I don't know what that is, but that's what I want to do. And so then from then on out, it was me bugging my mom and my dad. I want bass lessons. I want to be a bass guitar. I want to be Paul McCartney. I want to be a bass player. <laughs> and so uh, I didn't win that fight at the time. My mom had me in piano lessons and she wanted me to stay in piano lessons. And a little tension about that because <laughs> I didn't quite enjoy playing the piano. And I also, my first teacher was very strict and a little scary. Um, so... That was that was like an ongoing battle in the house. My my mom, uh, my parents are from India. Uh, they came to the states in the late seventies uh, for grad school, and then you know, then I was born, and now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so my mom was trained in the um, in in vocal uh, in the Indian vocal tradition uh, by oh gosh, I really wish I could remember her teacher's name, but. It was in the school of, it was in Ravi Shankar's school. Ravi Shankar oh, wow. was actually um, a family friend of my mother's family. So there's an interesting <laughs> yeah. out of there name drop. But um, so, so she, was a, she was a beautiful singer. And then my dad had studied violin when he was young, classical violin, um, Western classical music. So they both, they just wanted me to, well, my mom wanted me to be a pianist and play Carnegie Hall. My dad was just like, hey, I want you to know music theory. I think that's 
a good thing for you to know. So I didn't like the piano lessons, but I did get music theory. And I'm very grateful for that because that did serve me well years later when I finally took it upon myself to learn how to play bass guitar, which was actually not that long ago. I want to say I was 30 or 31. No, let me let me roll that back. I bought my first bass at 25 and I kind of plunked around with it and I was like, I don't, I don't know how to read a bass tab. I don't know what I'm doing. I know sheet music. I don't what what are these dots on a on a <laughs> page? I don't I don't get it. Strings, I don't I know keys, I don't know strings. So I was a little intimidated, but I was like, I have the bass. And then finally when I was 30, I was like, you know what? Uh, you know, I'd kind of reach a crossroads in my career. And I was looking to make a lot of changes. I I um I was living in I, I lived in the Hudson Valley for almost twenty years, and I worked in New York City. And I had been working a very toxic job, parted ways with that job, and I was like, you know what? I want to make a change. I'm sick of the rat race. I hate the commute. I want to start focusing on things that are more important to me than just you know career girl stuff. Right. So I started taking classes at. Beacon Music Factory, which is a music school in Beacon, New York. That's where I lived at the time. And they offered private lessons, people of all ages, kids, adults, whoever. And they also had a really cool program called Rock Band Boot Camps, where you would either pick an artist or sometimes it would be like, hey, this movie has a really great soundtrack, like the Blues Brothers or the Commitments or Footloose. Ooh. I don't think three three solid yet. soundtracks <laughs> yeah, right exactly. out of the gate, you know. <laughs> um, and so then you would either, or even you would take like an album. So it's like you know, like okay, we're gonna do a David B- David Bowie boot camp, and then you pick your favorite David Bowie songs. You'd get a group of people sign up. It's a group class, be led by a, an actual music instructor, and you would have a set. You would learn a set, and then you would get an actual gig in a music venue in town, and get to perform to an audience. Um, so we would, you know, like we, they did David Bowie. I'm, I'm trying to think of what else they've done. They did. Uh, my first one was the soundtrack to the movie, the commitments, as I mentioned. Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, soundtrack. Very, yeah. Very Mo- Motown. A lot of fun. And that was a lot of fun learning to play that stuff on bass too. That's just some really, really fun stuff to play. Um, and then, you know, we did things like, uh, we covered all of, um, I was in one covering all of born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen. I did Born to Run as well several years later. We did Rubber Soul. Um, we did a U2 boot camp, which I loved. I love U2. Don't judge me. Some people, <laughs> some people judge me. Some people are like, yeah, U2. Um, and, uh, you know, Chuck Berry. I mean, I got everything. We did Amy Winehouse. We did, I mean, like, it's, it runs the gamut of, you know, like, what, whatever people could pitch to the guy who owned this school, Stephen Clare, who's an amazing musician um, and actually grew up in the area. Um you know, if people were interested, he was like, all right, we'll put it together and we'll get an instructor to do it. And so I, I started not just learning how to play the bass, but playing out like almost immediately after I started learning. And how old were you like at this point? At this point I was like 30, 31 years old. So I was, I'm like finally living my dream (laughs) after like 20 something years. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I play bass as well. I don't know if you knew that, but I mean, and (laughs) our band, I mean, we started a, a year ago. It's never too late. And I'm 49 years you know so i was 47 48 you don't look and then we decided well thank you (laughs) and then we decided we were just like let's 
do it. You know, let's do it. And I had never done it. So it is never it's too never late. It's never too like, late. So yep. that's, a, that's the message. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead. So, um, like. so yeah, I was, play- <laughs> I was playing out like immediately. And it was, you know, it's like ven- when I say venues, you know, it's like it's local bars that sure. had music. So it was kind of a bunch of, you know, it was like it's very bar bandy, you know, like playing the classics. Like, let's go do a set of Stone songs. Let's go play through all of Rubber Soul on stage. Um, and I found that that was the best way to learn how to play was to play with other people. Absolutely. And And other styles that are like an established style. Exactly. Exactly. You kind of, you learn, there's so much variety. There's so much different, you know, different feels. Well, I I did, I did the Pogues. We did a Pogues boot camp (laughs) a few years ago. And that's very, I mean, it's, it's very like root five, root five, root five on the bass, but it's fast and it's fun. It's kind of punky and it's kind of, you know, raunchy and it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, it was, it was that kind of camaraderie and teamwork and like, you know, getting to be a a part of a whole. And I learned really fast by doing that way faster than I would have learned if I was just like, let me sit down with it. I mean, I did do a couple of sit down lessons with teachers one-on-one, like when I was learning a hard part. Um, we did a, a who boot camp. Uh, I did, I, I should have waited a couple of years before I did that. (laughs) It was way too early for me. And, uh, of course, you know, we want to do all of everyone's favorite who song. So my generation, which has a famous bass solo by John Entwistle, who's a brilliant bass player. And I'm the bass, I'm playing bass in this camp. And I was like, oh shit, now I have to learn this bass solo that everyone knows. Um, and so, you, you know, stuff like that where I'd sit down with somebody and be like, okay, let's, let's figure out like note by note what this is. Is this too hard? How can we simplify it and still make it feel like what it's supposed to feel like? Um, and that, that was a really good lesson too of like, okay, let me listen to this and say, okay, this, maybe this is a little beyond what I can do right now, but what can I use my ear to do in order to, you know, figure out what I can play and have it feel the way it needs to feel to serve the song the way right. it does. And then it becomes a little bit of your own. Exactly. Like, exactly. So. And that's and that's a really cool feeling too to be like, okay, I'm putting my little spin on this. This is a song yeah. I really love and I get to I get to to do my own thing with it. So, I did that for a long time. I ended up actually working at Beacon Music Factory after a couple of years. That was a re- I mean, that was in, ter- <laughs> in terms of like a career change. That was like a huge dramatic shift. I'd been working in um corporate hospitality and the restaurant industry but like as a, an accountant and a buyer okay. so not really not really on the front lines gotcha. but you know a lot of very numbers heavy jobs uh and very sit down in front of a desk and follow the dress code and stuff like that right. <laughs> and so it was nice to kind of just like be free and be like oh cool i don't i mean i got a lot of tattoos i don't have to be it's cold today so you can't see any of them um but you know not have to worry about that be oh i can put crazy colors in my hair and nobody's going to yell at me just kind of allow my it was like a whole bunch of expression that came along with being able to play the music I wanted to play play the instrument I wanted to play um and I've I've always been a singer when I was in high school I really wanted to be an actor and I started kind of pursuing that very seriously I went to a very kind of um hippie arty high school in san francisco i grew up in san francisco um 
school was a block away from Haight Ashbury, so you can and it was founded in the '60s, so it was you can kind of imagine the environment, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. Um, and I did a lot of theater. I did a couple of summer theater intensives, one at Boston University and one at Northwestern University. And I pursued vocal training in those programs because I was like, oh, I want to be in musical theater. That was that that was my high school dream. And then um, I got to college. I went to Vassar College in Poughkeepsie. That's what got me to New York from San Francisco. And then I stayed <laughs> for 20 years. I stayed in the area. Um, and then for whatever reason, when I got to Vassar, they have an amazing theater program, but I just, I, I got there and I just wasn't feeling it. I didn't really connect with any of the professors. Um, I love theater, but uh, and no offense to any theater people listening right now, theater kids can be really annoying. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and I was just like, I don't know if I can do four years of this. I, you know, um, so I switched to being a film major, which literally meant walking across the hall in the in the building. Um, and that was cool, too, because, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was still very arts uh, centric. And, you know, I learned how to I feel like a lot of art when you kind of get down to it, it's very similar to like studying literature. You're looking at images kind of, you know, whether you're looking at an image on a screen or you're looking at imagery on a page, or if you're listening to music, you're hearing imagery, and you're learning how to interpret it and translate it and respond to it and take what you can get from it. And then there's also the creator's intent, but there's also like, well, they intended that, but I am feeling something resonating with me in it, and that's moving. And I think right. that's what's really cool about all art. Um, so that long story short, I studied film and then I graduated and I've done nothing with that degree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fell into I, I, I needed to pay rent. So I started temping at a resort in New Paltz, New York. And then that became my job for a long time. Um, so, yeah, that's that is how that is why it took me so long to get to the music stuff. And so then I was working for the music school. That was a lot of fun. I was very, I was, I was working at the music school. I wasn't paid as much as I was paid in Manhattan, understandably. Um, but the, uh, the guy who owned the school, Stephen, he would, he basically said, you can take as many, you know, music lessons as you want. You can do as many bouquet. He'll, he would comp them or deeply discount them in a way to kind of offset the fact that he was also compensating me significantly less than I was used to. Um, and then there was, and then I got really into it. There was a time when I was like doing three boot camps at once. I was, you know, and like people were like, Hey, we're doing a Led Zeppelin boot camp, and we have to do over the hills and far away. And the guy who's singing lead cannot hit those high notes. Can you guest star and do that? And I'm like, sure, why not? You know, and I'm like running around the rehearsal rooms in the evening, you know? Um, and that was a lot of fun. And, you know, you, you learn a lot just about, not just about like how to be a musician, but you know, just like you learn about the history, you end up reading about, you know, like why did they write it this way or what was going on in their lives when, you know, like what was going on, you know, with the Stones when they were, you know, recording Exile on Main Street. Like what was that like and, and why did these songs come of it? And like 
that's also super cool because it's sort of, you know, when I went on and started creating original music, you know, you can kind of start to see like any little tiny thread of something can turn into a song, you know. So, um, so long story short, that's how I got into playing music. And I was very, I, I always wanted to do original music. And I was always very intimidated by the idea of doing original music. I knew a lot of musicians in Beacon who were songwriters. Um, and I loved them. I'd go to their shows and I would talk to them about it. And they were always just kind of like, you have to just do it. This isn't like you have to, you, you, you can't take a class. You can't go, no professor is going to stand up in front of you with a chalkboard behind him and say, this is step by step the methodology for writing a song. You just have to do it. And that... I had a mental block about that for so long. And it, uh, some of it's probably, impo I mean, probably all of it is imposter syndrome. I was just kind of like, I know I can sing. I know I can play bass guitar, but maybe I'm just a cover band person. Maybe that's, maybe that's my musical destiny. I don't know. There was just something that was always holding me back and holding me back and holding me back. And then a friend of mine who I had done, we did an Amy Winehouse boot camp together. And uh, I was hanging out with her and her wife, and they had a friend in New York City named Luke Folger. And he is a he's primarily a drummer, but he's a multi-instrumentalist, writes his own stuff. And they knew him from when they lived in the city, and they were like, we would love to connect the two of you because you seem like you would have a lot in common. And he might be able to kind of help you get over this hump of... of feeling like you can't do it because he's just he's just a great collaborator um and so I was like hey cool so they introduced us via email and he went and dug up you know videos of our boot camp performances just to like make sure that they weren't you know sending him a dud <laughs> you <laughs> know um and he was like no you seem really cool your voice is really interesting I would love to help you write an album and he and I communicated over email and phone and text for about a year. This was starting in 2019. And, uh, you know, kind of talking about what we wanted the, the songs to be about. And this is where everything kind of comes a little full circle. Um, 2018 through 2020, I had a really, really rough time um, mental illness-wise. Um, I kind of had a nervous breakdown somewhere in there. Um, and that's because, so when I was 12, my mother, who introduced me to the Beatles and kind of opened the door for me to want to be a musician, she passed away from cancer. She'd been battling it on and off for eight years. Uh, there's no good time to lose a mother. There's no good time to lose a parent. 12, really not a great time. Um, you know, and my dad and I had been taking care of her and we were, you know, kind of in the shit together. And... At the time, we were kind of like, all right, you know, and my mom was very strong-willed and very like, I don't want you wallowing in, p in, in, you know, misery or whatever. Don't use me as an excuse to, like, stop your lives if I go. And we kind of took that maybe too literally. We were like, all right, life goes on. We love her. We remember her. And in her honor, we're just going to push forward. And we never dealt with our grief. We never did any grief counseling, therapy, anything like that. When we talked about her, we always just talked about the fun memories. You know, he would tell me stories about when they first met. And she was a really, really funny person. She was a lot of fun to hang out with. Um, 
But we never really talked about the hard stuff, the really, really hard stuff. And in 2018, I got into a pretty serious relationship with my current partner, uh, Tim. And there was something about, I, I, I dated other, I had other relationships, but this is like, this was one of those, like, this is it. This is my person. This is, you know, and we'd been friends for many, many years and it just, and there was something so intense about that, just like going into that relationship and being like, this is it. I found my person and wanting to be the best for that person. And that was when all of the repressed grief came bubbling up. And I just, I was super depressed. Um, I had in the meantime gone back to working in the city because the music school had a couple of rough quarters and he couldn't afford to pay me anymore. So it was just going back to that commute, going back to that rat race, um, trying to to figure out what was going on, why I was suddenly like like crying depressed, like crying during the day. Like I would have to leave my desk and run downstairs outside and just like, you know, or run to the ladies room and be like, okay, I hope no one can hear me. Um, and it was hard and it was hard on, on Tim, my, my, my boyfriend. It was, it was hard on him. He's, I mean, he's a saint. He's, he really, he put up with a lot. That's not necessarily what he thought he was signing up for. Um, but he, he, he understood what was happening and he was trying to be supportive but it was a lot it was a lot that I went through and it was a lot that I put him through as the person who lived with me um and I ended up this is gonna get very dark um I became suicidal there was one night very late like December 2019 where I was just very very depressed crying I don't remember what it was I said but whatever it was I said freaked him out enough that he called 911 because he was afraid that I was going to actually act on a suicidal impulse. I spent the night in the psych ward at Orange Regional Hospital. They're very nice there. <laughs> um, and then my they, they called my psychiatrist. I'd been on medication for depression for a while. They called him, obviously, and said, she's here. Something's happened. And the Monday after that, uh, I got a call from my psychiatrist, and he goes, I'm referring you to um, an intensive outpatient uh, psychiatric program. This is not optional. Uh, you know, do not pass go. Uh, do not collect $200. This is non-negotiable. Um, and it was at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. And they are, you know, they do inpatient programs they do intensive outpatient programs they do rehab for substance abuse they do they're kind of they do everything um they are apparently really famously known for um being where celebrities who are in the new york area who need rehab uh will go i i later found out that john mulaney went there when he was dealing with his addiction i believe john ham from mad men when he was dealing with alcohol stuff. I heard that he went there. I didn't run into these people while I was there, but that's all right. Um, so I went into an intensive outpatient program, eight weeks. It was starting in January of 2020. Now you can see where the timeline is starting to get a little interesting. Um, three times a week, group therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. 
And it's all about, I'd been in therapy before, talk therapy, where you, you know, you kind of go in and you say, okay, I'm feeling miserable. Uh, this is what's going on. They try to help you. Dialectical behavioral therapy is very much more about learning life skills. Like, you know, you're having, you know, you're having trouble controlling your emotions. What can you do to interrupt that and, 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 and move forward? Like how you can learn tools for distress tolerance. So like if your impulse when you're distressed is to, lash out and cry and break things that's not constructive but this is what you can do this is how you can distract yourself you can do a breathing technique you can go for like a sprint around the block you can splash cold water on your face you can think about something else entirely like you're walking on the beach and just try to you know let the bad feelings wash over and be replaced either with a shock like sprinting around the block or cold water or just like a nice image. That's one of many, many tools that I learned. And it was also really gratifying being in a room with other people who were also, you know, dealing with similar issues. It just felt like a there was a social worker who would guide the sessions and guide the lessons. And then we would all kind of get to talk about how we were using them. And it was really, really gratifying to be in that room and feel kind of like a community. And also be able to see everybody else progress and get kind of inspired by that as well. So it was it was the best that I had to quit my job to do it. And I had not been at that job long enough for FMLA. So I just I had to quit the job because it was 3 3 days a week and you know, it was it was it was a life and death sort of situation. Uh I'm so grateful I did it. I am in I'm not even recognizable now from what I was when I started that program. Um, eight weeks, I started late January 2020. My very last session, my graduation day, was four days before uh, Governor Cuomo put New York into lockdown for COVID. So that was really good timing because you, you couldn't do in-person therapy after that. Um, and I'd been talking with Luke still all this time about what are we, you know, like this album and, and what we want to do with it and what we want the content to be. And through my like depression and all this stuff, he and I were talking about it. And through my intensive treatment, we were talking about it. And so what resulted was our record, eight songs. It's called The Way Up. And the songs you know, are all about aspects of learning how to live with grief, learning how to be a functional person, um, kind of, you know, acknowledging and embracing the fact that if you're dealing with a mental illness, you might be dealing with it for life, but that doesn't mean that you're a basket case and you're worthless. It means that you have the ability to to rise up and make yourself better. And even if you're fight, even if every day you're fighting it, every day you're finding that, oh, I gotta use this tool, or I gotta think this, or I gotta pull myself up and, and, and make myself get through the day, it's doable. You don't have to give up. And that kind of became really important to me as we were like finishing the writing process that I was, you know, not that I, you know, Nobody knows who I am. <laughs> but I was like, you know, if even if one person who's in a bad place hears this and feels like, okay, this is an insurmountable 
then I've done something good. And that was really, really meaningful for me to do. And then again, you know, going back to the idea of me feeling like, oh, I don't know how to write music, um, original music. Uh, I, I, I'm still, I'm learning how to do the music part of that, but the, but writing the lyrics, that also kind of tripped me up. I was like, they have to rhyme, they have to make sense, they have to not be corny. Um, and so Luke and I did a lot of communication over email where he would just kind of give me prompts, like, tell me this, tell me a story about this, tell me how you felt when this happened, tell me what's the biggest thing that you took away from that program, whatever, and then I would kind of and then I would kind of send him back some word vomit. And then he would throw it back to me and be like, okay, can you take this and kind of do some free verse writing about, you know, like kind of turn this into more imagery and then send it back to me. I sent it back to him and then he took that and he made it rhyme. He made it lyrics. And that was so cool. That process was so cool. Just the bouncing back and forth and the collaboration while he was also writing the music, and he'd write the music, and he'd send me, like, How, what do you think of this? Are you vibing with this? What do you want me to change? We did this all over email. I did not meet him in person until... until we got together to track the vocals, which was, I want to say... Oh, fe- it was February. No, no, it wasn't. I don't remember when it was exactly, which is shameful. Maybe it was. It was. It was still cold outside, um, and we still had to worry about masking and social distancing and stuff like that. But um, yeah, we never met in person until the day we got together to track all the vocals. Um, but he's a super cool guy. He's you know we're around the same age. We kind of have the same musical touchstones, not just like the older stuff, but the stuff that we grew up listening back when MTV still used to play music. Um, You know, very, very common, you know, like, you know, um, I don't want to say post-grunge because that makes me think of Nickelback. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, like, uh, we're we're a little too young for Nirvana, but Nirvana is definitely a touchstone. But, you know, bands like Foo Fighters, uh, a little Alanis Morissette, when I'm thinking about, like, where we drew from to come from this come to this album it was you know like in in that vein that's kind of what we were were thinking about um we tracked the vocals he mixed and engineered all of it he got it mastered and we released it this year january 27th 2021 uh it was in the middle of the omicron surge and the dead of winter but we had it and it was ready and we were like and this is the first time he had written, enti- you know, like written an entire album and produced it and mixed it and done everything. And we were like, do we sit on this until spring? And we were like, no, we're not going to learn anything if we sit on that. We've been working on this for two years already. Let's just put it out in the world and see what happens. And it got, a, you know, like for for a record that came out in the dead of winter, um, it did get some attention from a few music publications and I did an album release show up here. Yeah. In the middle of all of this, my boyfriend and I relocated from the Hudson Valley last summer up here. We live in Cambridge now um, because we had both 
well, I was already, I had quit my job to do the psychiatric program, and then he lost his job due to COVID. He worked in hospitality as well. Um, and we weren't able to find local jobs where we were, so we expanded our job search parameters and ended up up here. It's only two hours away from where we were, so it's not like, you know, wasn't a huge thing. Right. But, you know, after after 20 years in the Hudson Valley, there was a little, like, ooh, this is interesting. Um <laughs> But uh, but we did an album release show at um, Argyle Brewing Company at the Depot in Cambridge. Uh, David Van Pelt was super, super welcoming and really excited to have me there. Um, and then we did another, we did like a three, a th- it was supposed to be a three-step album release season almost. So we did on release day at Argyle Brewery. Um, the following week, we did a show down at Dogwood, which is a bar where I had done a lot of those boot camp performances. And that was amazing because everybody, I mean, like, and I hadn't seen a lot of these people since we had moved the prior summer. It's like everybody I had ever played music with and everybody I'd ever been friends with down there it was a small town. It was still like the middle of Omicron and everybody came out and they were all joking that, Rhea's show is going to be a super spreader event, <laughs> but we don't care. Um, and that was just an amazing, amazing night because it was just, it just felt really validating to be up there in front of the people who I'd learned to play music with and be like, okay, I've done something new and I'm going to give this to you. Um, so that was great. We had a third show planned in New York City and there was some mix up with the venue um, and they double booked with another band and. Uh, it was just not so great. So we didn't do that show. We ended up doing a show in the city, actually, in September. Um, and that kind of hits my, you know, like, <laughs> those are like my three zones in New York State. There's where I am now. There's where I live for 20 years. And then there's the fact that, you know, like, my music collaborators are, a lot of them are in New York City. So I kind of traveled up and down the Hudson and spread my music far and wide. Um, <laughs> along the river. Right. <laughs> well, speaking of music, should we play something off of that release? Yeah, that would be great. Um, I think I think the song to play would be "Need You There." Okay. Um, that song's gotten uh, uh, Andy Gregory at Wext has featured it on his uh, um, local five one eight show. It's gotten some radio play in the Hudson Valley and in the city as well. Everybody seems to really love that song. Um, so a little bit of background about that one. It's a little bit, it's, it's, it started out as, it's kind of a reflection on past relationships I've been in and, you know, kind of my immaturity and how I handled them ending or my immaturity and how I, you know, like learning how to be in a relationship and sort of the transformative power of kind of learning how to be an adult in a relationship and in a functional relationship. So it's kind of about that transition. Um, and a lot of people say it's their favorite song on the record. It is my favorite song on the record. So I think this would be a, a good one to share. Cool. And it was Need You There? Need You There. Need You There. All right. So let's listen to Need You There. And then we'll be right back with Rhea Banerjee.
with Need You There, Rhea Banerjee. And that's one, you um, you know, obviously we've been talking about your collaboration with Luke Folger. He was down in the city. You've been doing a lot of, you know, uh, long distance songwriting and collaborating. And he's actually not the only one that you've collaborated with recently. And that's uh, James Rubino is my other primary collaborator. Um, I've known James a long time. We met... Uh, we both worked at the music school, and I actually met him even before I started working there. Um, he was an instructor there, and he taught the very first, the commitments, the very first boot camp I was in. Um, uh, he is a great guy. He's like, he's my, like, he's like my best friend in the world. He's the little brother, little brother from another mother, that's what <laughs> I call him. Um, and, you know, he and I, um, he and I connected pretty early. He's also a huge Beatles fan. And, um, you know, we were we were both kind of on the younger side of the adult student population who would come through the school. So we sort of gravitated to each other because of that. He's 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 10 years younger than me, which I did not realize for many, 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 many months because he's very mature for his age. And then he was also kind of cagey about it because he didn't want people condescending to him. And then (laughs) Facebook blew his cover on his 21st birthday. And he was like, oh, damn it. Um. So he and I have been collaborating since we worked. I mean, when we worked at the school, every month we would do a student showcase at a bar in town. And that was for every, even the little kid students. They could get to go up on stage and play what they're learning on the ukulele or on the violin or vocal lessons or whatever. And we would always try to do um, a faculty spotlight as well because they're just, there often be pe- random people in the bar drinking. And we were thinking, oh, if they see. The, the saxophone teacher playing something on stage. Maybe like, I always wanted to play saxophone. Maybe I'll go sign up, you know. <laughs> um, and then, but but sometimes uh, we would not succeed in getting one of the teachers to perform just because most of the instructors there were working musicians, so they have a paying gig somewhere else or a childcare debacle or whatever. So then James and I kind of always took it upon ourselves to be like, we're the emergency fill-in when that happens. And sometimes we would only have 20 minutes notice. Like Beacon Music Factory night is starting in 20 minutes. Brad can't make it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then he and I would be like, what can we do? Nine times out of 10, it would be a Beatles song because we both knew how to play them. And we would duet. I'd be on bass. He'd be on guitar. We'd sing. So we were we were already really good at sort of like fast collaboration. And um, around the time I was graduating from the inpatient or <laughs> inpatient intensive outpatient program, um, I hadn't played music in a long time. And I was talking about in, se- in, in group therapy about how music was a really healing thing for me and how I had stepped away from it when I was getting worse and worse into my depression. And I kind of, um, so on my last day, I kind of wanted to prevent, present everybody with a gift. Um, and so uh, James and I lived in the Hudson Valley. He moved down to Brooklyn. But I hooked up with him and I said, can you help me record a song? Because I, you know, just, it was like supposed to be a one-off. I want to just sort of like record a song and present it to the group and say, you know, you've helped me kind of find myself again and then this is you know this is me coming back to music and I want to leave this with you um it was Galileo by the Indigo Girls which is so not in my wheelhouse but the lyrics are it's all about kind of reincarnation and and finding a new version of yourself and that's very very much what we were talking about in group therapy so James and I like 
banged that out in 10 days. I went down, recorded in his closet, and <laughs> he mixed it for me, played along on guitar. And we had so much fun doing that, and we hadn't, it was like the last time we had collaborated like that was when we were at the music school, and we were like, this is fun, I miss doing, doing this with you. Why don't we keep doing this? And we started working on another song, um, Freedom 90 by George Michael, which is an amazing song. And then lockdown happened, and we were like, what are we going to do? And then we decided it was way before the idea of a COVID pod was acceptable, but we just decided we were going to be a COVID pod, me, his girlfriend, his housemate, and Tim were going to be like a long-distance COVID pod. We were the only people we would interact with. And he and I started doing a lot of reinvented covers, just songs that we liked, but we didn't want to do a straight cover. We would always, you know, reinvent it, put our own spin on it, change, change the arrangement, change how the vocals were presented. And over time, we began to realize that every song that we were picking, it was fun to do it because it was kind of happening parallel with the record with Luke. Every song that I was picking was also resonating with some aspect of my recovery. So that was super cool. And we did that. And I, so I was recording with James continuously through 2020. And that's and that was the first time I was actually recording music and learning how to sing into a microphone in a studio as opposed to sing into a microphone on stage and right. and the different the you know it's a it's a different set of tools you need to sing in a studio environment and I got really good at that and that's why when I got together with Luke to to record the album it went super fast because I already he didn't have to teach me how to be in a studio so James and I have been working on that um, since lockdown pretty much started in 2020 um we called the project corona music because we have a stupid sense of humor but we thought and we think it's funny um and we're still working on it because the pandemic is still kind of out there and you know we're we want it we kind of are thinking that it's sort of a record of this really kind of crazy unprecedented time um that being said, uh, when, the way, when The Way Up was released, Luke and I never thought that we'd be able to perform any of that record live because we were putting it together during lockdown. We were like, are venues ever going to open? Are we ever going to get to be in a room with bandmates? Like, is this ever going to be safe? And things were starting to open up by the time the record came out. So I put together a live band to learn I mean, Luke wrote these songs, and he was like, I mean, so they're in weird tunings. They're in, I mean, like, he didn't even write down chord charts. He's like, I just played stuff I thought sounded cool. <laughs> and because he was like, no one's going to, we're not going to perform this, whatever. And then we decided we were going to perform it. And I put together a band, and I got James. James is a brilliant guitar player. He's also, he's a multi instrumentalist and he's a recording engineer, but he's a brilliant guitar player. And he was like, no, this music is not unplayable live. I can figure it out. And he figured out how to play the record live. And so it's him, James Rubino on lead guitar. He's kind of the de facto musical director. And then I've got, these songs are too hard for me to sing and play bass on. So I've got a lovely woman, Daria Grace, playing bass. Keyboard player, Adam Glock, playing keyboard. And Tony Senecola playing drums. So when we do our live shows, that's my live band. Cool. Um, and then this summer, James and I, we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do next for the Corona Music Project. And then James was like, why don't we write a song? He's like, he's like, you know, uh, we, we're not abandoning the, the original project, but you're in this very creative space right now promoting the record and getting your, your voice out there as an original 
songwriter, why don't we keep doing that? And so he and I wrote this new single that we have. It's coming out this week. I'm releasing it the day before Thanksgiving. Um, it's called Mechanic of the Hudson, and it's very much about the idea of what home is and finding a home and finding figuring out who you are in the context of your location which is a reoccurring theme in my life I moved around a lot in my childhood before we landed in San Francisco then I ended up in New York for 20 years in the Hudson Valley and then we moved up here last year and so I've been doing a lot of thinking about what is home is home people is home a location is it all those things? Is it none of those things? What does that mean? And how does that affect me psychologically? And um, Luke and I were already planning on doing a follow-up. James is going to join us on that collaboration. And we're as we discuss what we want the follow-up to look like, it's very much in that vein of like, you know, place and home and, you know, is it wherever you go, there you are, doesn't matter where you are, or can location really affect how you feel? So... This new song is very much kind of pointing us in the direction of where we're headed with the new record. Um, So it's written entirely by me and James. Uh, I actually did get involved in writing the music of this as well. So that was a big step forward for me. Um, And yeah, it just it felt like a. I mean, it's it's a little dark, but it also (laughs) is like, you know, at a time of year when people are with family and kind of thinking about who their family is and who home is, it feels like a nice time to sort of release this contemplative, you know, cool meditation on, on that concept. All right. So let's, let's hear it. And what was the name of the song? It's called mechanic of the Hudson mechanic of the Hudson. All right. So let's listen to mechanic of the Hudson and then we'll be right back to wrap it up with Rhea Banerjee.
He twists the bone as he falls I should move to New York City Or maybe Poughkeepsie There's bound to be somebody Who's waiting there for me And I'm closing in on something I think 
me blind A feeling under pressure An ice pick in my mind Nowhere to go Right, so that was Mechanic of the Hudson, Rhea Banerjee. And Rhea, I want to thank you so much for coming out here. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to thank do so. It was me. a very interesting episode. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. So um, before you go, like I tell all my guests, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of say your you know, thank yous or gratitudes or you know, say hi to whoever you want, kind of whatever. <laughs> uh, microphone is all yours. All right. Well, I'll start out by saying thank you to Mikey at the Jive Hive for putting me in touch with you. Thank you to Lucas Garrett for putting me in touch with the Jive Hive. It's all kind of connecting. I love that I'm getting more involved in the music scene up here because this is my new home. Um, thank you, as always, to Luke Folger and James Rubino for helping me push myself to be a better musician and just being supportive and being great friends. Thank you to Tim Stara, my boyfriend. He listens to every mix and every iteration of the song, even when it's a demo and it sounds like crap with a scratch vocal. And he's like... I can see what you're going for with that. Thumbs up. Keep going. <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's great. Um, and, uh, you know, thank you to everybody I played music with down in Beacon um, because you really, really helped me get to a place where I can, I feel like I can authentically say I'm a musician now and it's never too late. Nice. Perfect. All right. So thank you again for coming out. That is Rhea Banerjee. And I will uh, link to you know your socials and your music so that people can very easily find you. But uh, so anyway, Rhea Banerjee, I'm Andy Scullin. This is Unsigned 518. And we'll see you on the road. Unsigned 518 is produced in conjunction with Nippertown. You can find new episodes here every week on nippertown.com. If you are a band or musician in the 518 area code and would like to be on Unsigned 518, shoot me an email at unsigned518 at gmail.com. I'm your host, Andy Scullin. I'll be back next week with another episode of Unsigned 518. Thanks for listening.